Please then turn with me in your Bibles to our text this morning, which comes from the book of Revelation, as we'll be looking at chapter 20 and verses 7 to 10. Revelation chapter 20, verses 7 to 10. Revelation chapter 20, verses 7 to 10. Please then, brothers and sisters, hear with me the reading of God's infallible Word. And when the thousand years are ended, Satan will be released from his prison and will come out to deceive the nations that are at the four corners of the earth, Gog and Magog, to gather them for battle. Their number is like the sand of the sea. And they marched up over the broad plain of the earth and surrounded the camp of the saints in the beloved city. But fire came down from heaven and consumed them. And the devil who had deceived them was thrown into the lake of fire and sulfur. For the beast and the false prophet were. And they will be tormented day and night forever and ever. Thus far as the reading of God's Word. Well, brothers and sisters, what we have seen is that chapter 20... Uh, gives to us a succinct look at the world from the first coming of Christ until our Lord's final return. As we've seen in verses 1 to 3, in the first coming of Christ, Satan has been bound, meaning that he is unable to deceive the nations any longer. He is unable to, to stop the light of the gospel from going forth to the ends of the world. And we said that this is taking place during the thousand years or during the, the church age. Uh, last week then we seen the vision switch from heaven, or excuse me, from earth in verses one to three to heaven in verses four to six. And that vision demonstrated for the, the saints what happens to them when they die during the thousand years. And that was shown to them as an encouragement to them that they might persevere in the faith until the end even if that end meant death at the hands of the Roman authorities. Uh, we also seen how the resurrection described in verses 4 to 6 was a spiritual resurrection. It was a spiritual resurrection, a translation from death to glory, only for those, though, who have been spiritually already raised on the earth. And we've seen how this cannot be a bodily resurrection, because we recognize that the Scriptures teach us that the bodily resurrection cannot occur until death has been destroyed. And death will not be destroyed, we learn, until the, the second death, at the final judgment, which we shall read about next week in verses 11 to 15. But, but this week, what we have recorded for us in verses 7 to 10 is the release of Satan. Right? That's what's recorded for us here, but... This is something that we ought to have expected because in verse 3, we learned that this had to occur. If you remember earlier in verse 3 of chapter 20, we're told that after the thousand years ended, Satan must be released. And that's exactly what we see here then in verse 7, which reads, And when the thousand years are ended, Satan will be released from his prison. And so we see that chapter 20 doesn't just provide to us a, a look at the world between the first and second coming, but what chapter 20 in particular also does is show to us the defeat of Christ's most notorious foe 
which is the devil. Now remember one thing that we have repeated over and over again, and for good reason throughout our studying the book of Revelation, is that these are parallel visions depicting similar events from different perspectives. And we've seen that actually with each one of Christ's foes. If you remember, as they are introduced to us, how are they introduced to us? First in chapter 12, we are introduced to the dragon, aren't we? And there we are told what, dra- what the dragon or the devil's activity is during the thousand years. In chapter 13, then we are introduced to the beast and the false prophet. And there, the same thing is true. We are told what is their role during the church age, during those thousand years. Finally, we were introduced to the great harlot Babylon. And we were told what role Babylon plays in all of these things. And so each enemy has been introduced to us in parallel visions and their activity has been depicted right through the, through the course of the church age from the first coming of Christ until the second. And now as the weeks progress and we get near the end of the book of Revelation and we get near, end, uh, near to the end of these visions, what we also see, we said, is these visions tend to intensify and they focus less upon the beginning of the coming of Christ and, and they begin to, to zero in or hone in on the, on the final return of Christ and the, and the final judgment. Right? They focus more on that, that return in judgment and the destruction of His enemies. Only now, I want us to see this, is that now as the destruction of each enemy is described for us, it is done in the exact reverse order than in which they were introduced. Has anyone caught on to that as we've been reading through the book of Revelation? Right? They were introduced in what order? Dragon, beast, false prophet, Babylon. As we've been reading now about their destruction, how are they ordered now as their destruction is being introduced? In the exact reverse order. In chapter 18, we read about the fall of the harlot Babylon. In chapter 19, we heard about the destruction of the beast and the false prophet. And now today, we read about the destruction of the devil. And so we see that each vision is focusing upon the same events. right? The final judgment of Christ's return. But each one, chapter 18, chapter 19, chapter 20, highlights one particular foe. And so as we look then at the defeat of the devil, we're going to see so many similarities and parallels to other visions that we're going to be drawing. And we ought to do that. right? Because they're describing, as we said, the, the same events. And so as we turn our attention to our, our text, as we want to see what transpires at the end of these thousand years which our text is dealing with, we're going to first start by looking at the release of Satan. And so this is our first point this morning. The release of Satan. So at the end of the church age, at the end of the thousand years, we are told Satan will be released. And why is Satan released? He is released so that he could now deceive the nations. Right? Remember, he was bound for the thousand years so that he might not deceive them. Now he is released so he can resume doing the work that he did prior to the first coming of Christ. Right? Prior to when he was bound. But let us also see this, that deceiving the nations doesn't just consist and keeping them blind. right? Deceiving the nations means hardening them even further against God and against God's people. right? It includes stirring them up to to a greater hatred for God and for His people. Wanting them to to rise up together, inciting them 
to, to go against and to attack the people of God. And this is exactly what we've seen under the sixth seal, isn't it? Right? This is exactly the same vision we've seen under the sixth seal. If you remember in chapter 16, under the sixth seal, what happened? We were told that you have the beast, uh, the false prophet, and the dragon, and from their mouths comes three unclean spirits like frogs. And what do those frogs do? They go to deceive the kings of the nations in order that they might gather an army to defeat God's people on that great day of God the Almighty. And that battle was called what? Armageddon. And what happened as soon as the battle was over and the seventh seal is open? Judgment. Destruction. It's over. It's the exact same thing that chapter 20 is describing for us. The exact same picture here in verses 7 and uh, through verses 10. Uh, likewise, what we need to also see is that this uh, is a depiction that, uh, that corresponds to what we read likewise in Revelation 19, right? In 17 to 21, right? He is gathering the armies, not just like he was for Armageddon, but also this worldwide battle is described for us in Revelation 19, 17 to 21. That too describes the same Final worldwide battle as Revelation 16 does. And so we need to see Revelation 16, 6 seal, 7 seal, Revelation 19, 17 to 21, and Revelation 20, verses 7 to 10 are all describing the exact same thing. Right? What did we read at the end of chapter 19? All flesh is going to be feasted upon, right? right? All flesh is going to be devoured. The, the birds of the air are going to be called upon to, to eat the carcasses of the beast in the, in the False prophets defeated army. But where was that reference pulled from? Remember Ezekiel chapter 38 and 39. Well, what is being referenced in our text today? Ezekiel chapter 38 and 39. So they're not two different final end time eschatological battles, but rather one. And they're both describing the exact same thing. And so chapter 19 and chapter 20 describe the same battle. Right? Both referencing those Ezekiel texts to demonstrate that this is the eschatological fulfillment of the end times battle that Ezekiel describes. In fact, I want us to see this even further. If you've ever read through the book of Ezekiel, maybe you've noticed this. But in Ezekiel 34-37, to right, what you have there is God promising the revival of His people through the proclamation of the Gospel Right, take, for example, Ezekiel 36, where it talks about right, putting in them the, a new heart, right, causing them to walk in His ways. Right after Ezekiel 34 to 37, and Ezekiel 38 and 39, then what do we have? The foretelling of the final great assault against God's people. Right after that, in Ezekiel 40 to 48, what do we have? Description of the temple, which is symbolic for the eternal age. Now, what are we reading in Revelation so far in verses 1 to 10? In verses 1 to 3 is what? The fulfillment of Ezekiel 34 to 37 during the church age. The gospel goes forth and God's people are being saved. Right, right now in our text today, verses 7 to 10, the fulfillment of Ezekiel 38 and 39, the, the final great assault upon God's people. And what we're going to see in the weeks ahead is Ezekiel 40 to 48 as the temple is described in the eternal age, which comes down as the new heavens and the new earth. And so we see how chapter 20 of Revelation aligns 
right, with the book of Ezekiel. Right? How, how the book of Revelation answers so many of the questions that the Old Testament leaves us with. It, it demonstrates to us in so many ways right, how we find the fulfillment of those Old Testament texts. Now the nations, we are told in our text, are Gog and Magog. In Ezekiel chapter 38, verse 2, uh, Gog is the chief prince of Meshach and Tubal. And he is the one who leads the invasion against Israel. In Ezekiel chapter 38, verse 6, we are told that Magog is a territory located in the uttermost parts of the north. But now what do we see here in the book of Revelation? Right? These figures of Gog and Magog are symbolic figures representing the nations of the world who now come together for one final battle against God's people. See this as well. How the destruction of these enemies in Ezekiel corresponds to their destruction here in our text as well. In Ezekiel chapter 38, verse 22, we read this, I will reign on him and his hordes and on the many peoples who are with him torrential rains, hailstorms, fire, and sulfur. In Ezekiel 39.6, I will send fire on Magog and on those who dwell securely in the coastlands and they shall know that I am the Lord. So it's the fire and the sulfur that our text characterizes as the lake of fire. That the beast and the false prophet and all of the followers of the dragon go together to be. See how even more united Scripture is. How does... Scripture begin. This is wonderful if you think about it. Scripture begins with paradise. Begins with the paradise, that the Garden Temple Eden. And what happens? There's this great rebellion that transpires, right? How does this age end? In the exact opposite way. One final great assault and rebellion against God. And then paradise restored. I mean, think about how all of Scripture intertwines and is woven so beautifully together. Now, we might ask ourselves, though, how can this be? Right? How can this be? How can, in this uh, short period of time, Satan gather this grand army in order to fight against God's people? Right? This, this army is described as what? They're like the sand of the sea. Right? How can Satan gather an army like the sand of the sea when he's been bound for a thousand years? Well, it's because, brothers and sisters, remember we said that just because he was bound did not mean that he was inactive. Right? His binding was so that he could not stop the spread of the gospel from going forth and God's people from being saved. But Satan is still right, blinding the, the, the minds and the hearts of unbelievers everywhere, of the wicked everywhere. Right? He continues to harden them against God and His people. He continues to, to stoke up in their hearts hatred towards God with more fervor. Right? He incites them to want to see Christianity right, wiped off the face of the earth. And how does he do this though? How does Scripture tell us he does it? He does it through deception. He does it through deception. Deception is the devil's chief weapon. It is his chief weapon. He deceives the nations and the nations fall prey to the dragon's propaganda. And so there's coming a time, brothers and sisters, when 
When the hatred reaches a point in which all the nations will willingly come together, rise up against the church abroad in a worldwide way and manner with a ferocity that has never been seen before. It's been seen on small scales, hasn't it? In Rome in the first century, Europe during the time of the Reformation, China in the 20th century, Muslim countries today, but never the whole world. Never the whole world. So his success comes through deception. And so let us all see this. Let us all see how important it is to to know doctrine. How important it is to know doctrine and and to be thoroughly versed with the entirety of Scripture. Right? There are so many Christians today who, who push right, doctrine and knowledge down the list of importance, don't they? Thinking that maybe that's for the academics or maybe that's for pastors. No, brothers and sisters, doctrine is for us all. Right? We all must know it. We all must understand it so that we might be able to fight against the lies of the devil. Right? So that we would not be tricked by his coercive acts and his devilish schemes so that we might be able to point out and to expose his, his lies to our other brothers and sisters, that they might not succumb to the devil either. This is why we must continually, for the entirety of our life, the entirety of our existence, never stop learning. Right? Never stop learning doctrine and having a thirst for knowing doctrine and for growing in the faith and for understanding what God has revealed to us in His Word. This is why, as a people, you ought to desire that doctrine be preached from the pulpit as well. And not just happy-go-lucky messages or, or just practical messages. Yeah, practicality is very important, but so too is doctrine. Right, right doctrine makes for right practice. Right? And so we need right doctrine. And yet, brothers and sisters, let us also see this, that that the devil's schemes need something to work upon to have success, doesn't it? Right? He needs someone or something to work upon for his deceptions to work. And so what is that that, that he is able to work upon? Well, ultimately, it's the, it's the wicked heart of man, isn't it? Right? It's the sinfulness and the, and the wickedness of man's heart that, that Satan uses to find his success. Right? He puts things before their eyes that they, they love and they grab hold to and they don't want to let go of. Right? He, he presents evil before them that they themselves want and they go after and enjoy. And so let us each and every one of us see here today that the only way to fight against the, the tricks and devices of the devil is to have a renewed heart. Right? That is the only way you can fight and overcome the devils with a renewed heart, a heart that, that Jesus implants in you. One in which He causes you to, to see things that were once maybe not appealing to your eye to be appealing, and the things that, that were appealing when you were a sinner no longer appealing to your eyes anymore. Or it is Christ who implants within you a new will which causes you not to desire the sinful things that you once did. It is, it is Christ who implants with you new affections so that you don't love the same things that you used to, so that you are not so easily deceived by the devil. Right? That you don't run away when he presents something before your eyes because you no longer love it or have a desire for it or want it intellectually anymore. Right? See that. And so, brothers and sisters, we have to see that it's to Christ you must run to. If you do not have this renewed heart, right? you must come running to Christ, begging and pleading 
through repentance and faith that He would grant to you this renewed heart. And for those of you here today who, who do have a renewed heart, see also our need to, to come before the throne of, of God daily. Likewise, asking for His wisdom and His strength and His judgment so that He might help us to rightly use the weapons He has given us to reign over the devil and our spiritual enemies now. Because, brothers and sisters, He has given us that ability today. Right? To, to, over, to be overcomers. Right? Through His power and by His grace. But see this also. That not only do we need the power of God to spiritually overcome our enemies, we see in our text that we likewise need the power of God to, to physically overcome them as well. And this is what I mean. Physically, from our text, what we read today, the battle is going to be an uneven battle. Right? The battle is going to be an uneven, unmatched battle. Right? The odds are stacked against the church. From the outside, physically, it looks like the church is doomed. Right? Satan's army in verse 9, we're told, is what? Marched up over the plain of the earth, surrounded the camps of the saints in the beloved city. You see, brothers and sisters, while they're innumerable, we're a numbered people. Right? We're a people that can be surrounded. Right? We are people that can be surrounded. And so we appear to be surrounded. We appear to be then blocked on every side as we are encircled, have nowhere to go. Sure, doom seems to be on the horizon for the church. But this leads us to our second point as we look at what transpires at the end of the thousand years. And our second point is this, that God defends the camp of the saints. God defends the camp of the saints. Here we have more Old Testament imagery. Right? The, the camp in the Old Testament was often used for the wilderness encampment of the Israelite tribes around the tabernacle. But now what do we see? That that encampment imagery is used for the church. Why? Because the church is the camp. Because we are true Israel. But what does the imagery though tell us about the church even at the end of the age? That we are still a pilgrim people. When it tells us that we are still exiles in a world that is not our own. And just as God told the Israelites in their wilderness wanderings, in their exodus out of the wilderness to the land of Canaan, that He chose them not because they were the strongest of peoples, because rather they were the fewest, but because He, he set His love upon them and because of the, the oath that He made to their fathers. And we need to see that likewise will be the same for us as well. Right? When we are chosen not because we are the largest of number as Christians. We will never be the largest of number. We will never be a Christian nation or a, a Christian world until Christ returns. Brothers and sisters, see this, that we are on the second exodus. right? That we are on a pilgrimage to the wanderings of the wilderness of this world and Christ is taking us to not earthly Canaan, right, but to heavenly glory. Right? That's where Christ is taking us. And so, brothers and sisters, He has placed us in this camp, though, not because of anything special than within us. Right? Not because we are deserving of it, but rather because, like with Israel, He set His special love upon us and because He is steadfast and faithful in the oath He takes. And if we recall in the covenant of redemption, He made an oath with the Son and He will keep that oath that He made, and He will redeem a people and He will not lose those people that the Son has purchased by His blood. 
He will keep the oath that He has made with us who are in Christ in the new covenant. Now, the beloved city, let us see, is is synonymous with the holy city. The beloved city is synonymous with the holy city. And we've gone over this before. The holy city is what? The holy city is heavenly Jerusalem. But remember what we said about heavenly Jerusalem. We are members of heavenly Jerusalem now. We are heavenly, we are citizens of it now. We, we now experience the inaugurated reality of heavenly Jerusalem in our present lives today. Right? This is why Paul says in Galatians chapter 4 verse 26 that the Jerusalem above is free and she is our mother. Right? She is our mother now. And we receive the, the benefits of her now. And so the encampment of the saints is equated with the beloved city. And so as the the devil's army surrounds the encampment in the beloved city, what happens? Do we pick up sticks and swords and try to fight them? No. We're told this, but fire came down from heaven and consumed them. Throughout the Old Testament, Israel was at the mercy of nations more powerful than they. And how did they defeat those other nations? Through God's intervention. Through God's intervention. Right? They were delivered from their enemies by God when it appeared that they couldn't win. Right? There were no fighters against the Egyptians, correct? You ever heard of that phrase of, you know, fight or flight? They were all in flight mode when the Egyptians were coming after them, weren't they? There were no Israelite fighters. But why did there not need to be? Because God fought on their behalf. God Himself, by His omnipotent power, defended His people and destroyed the Egyptians. Now that language of of fire coming down from heaven and consuming them comes straight out of 2 Kings chapter 1. And so please turn with me there. 2 Kings chapter 1. And as you're turning there, remember here, the king of Samaria falls sick. He's in bed. He wants to know if he's going to get better. And so he he, uh, commissions some messengers to go out to a false god and to see if he is going to get better and live. But if you remember, as the messengers go out to to ask the, the, the false god this thing, what happens? Elijah meets the messengers. And what does Elijah say to the messengers? He says, no need to go and inquire about whether he'll be raised from his sickbed. He won't. right? He will die. Go back and tell him. And so this is then what we read starting in verse 9. After the king finds out that it was Elijah the Tishbite. He says, Then the, the king sent to him a captain of 50 men with his, with his 50. He went up to Elijah who was sitting on the top of a hill and said to him, O man of God, the king says, come down. But Elijah answered the captain of fifty, If I am a man of God, let fire come down from heaven and consume you and your fifty. Then fire came down from heaven and consumed him and his fifty. Again, the king sent him another captain of fifty with his fifty. And he answered and said to him, O man of God, this is the king's order. Come down quickly. But Elijah answered them, If I am a man of God, let fire come down from heaven and consume you and your fifty. Then the fire of God came down from heaven and consumed him and their fifty. 
So brothers and sisters, the point is clear in our text and why this is being quoted. It is because God will destroy our enemies. That's what he's saying to them. I am coming to destroy your enemies. It doesn't matter that all of the nations of the world shall encircle you. That all the nations are much stronger than you are and can defeat you. It does not matter because you don't fight to defend yourselves. I, God Almighty, will fight and defend you Myself. Right? That is what is being shown and demonstrated to us here in Revelation chapter 20. And how does God destroy our enemies on our behalf? Well, He does, through, does so through judging them. Right? That's how He defeats our enemies. He delivers us by, by judging our enemies. That's right. Fire is symbolic of what? Judgment. Right? So that is what He will do. He will judge our enemies. There's one additional aspect of this encampment in, uh, imagery that I want us to uh, likewise t- take note of. And that is this, that, that the people in the, in the camp of the Old Testament uh, had to be ritually clean to be in the camp. Why? Well, because God's presence was in the camp. And so you could not be ceremonially unclean. You had to be ceremonially clean to be in the camp. And there was many blessings to being in the camp where you have God's protection and, and God's blessing. We see this in a text like Deuteronomy chapter 23, verse 14, which says, Because the Lord your God walks in the midst of your camp to deliver you and to give up your enemies before you, therefore your camp must be holy, so that He may not see anything indecent among you and turn away from you. Now here is the difference. It is that it was through sacrifices and ritual right, that the people were outwardly made holy and able to stand within the camp of the Lord. But how do we now enter the camp, brothers and sisters? Right, we now enter the camp right, through the blood of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Through His atoning and through His abiding work for His people, it is He who has made us, not just outwardly, but inwardly, right, holy and clean, never then to be cast outside of the camp again. Never to be thrown outside. Always having His presence dwell amongst us and with us and by His Holy Spirit in us. And so we need to see it as Jesus who makes the the camp or the church now holy. It is Jesus who makes us a precious people. It is Jesus who makes us a, a privileged people and a lovely people and a victorious people and a and a people who are characterized by righteousness and light and and purity. And so oftentimes, brothers and sisters, many of you may have heard this yourself, our millennialists are oftentimes accused of being pessimistic people. We're oftentimes accused of being pessimistic. But I want us to see there's, there's no reason to be pessimistic about the future if you're an amillennialist. Right? This text, this vision gives us so many reasons to be optimistic about the future. Right? Although Paul says that right, our, our outwardly body, our flesh is perishing, right? inwardly we know, right, as we continue to, to progress towards the end, that the inward man is being renewed every day. Right? Even though at times it appears that as Satan is conquering the church, right, we can already know that Satan is a conquered foe. 
and that Christ is coming again to cast him into that lake of fire once and for all. Right? We ought to be optimistic about the spread of the gospel. We have to be optimistic about that, that, that the gospel as it goes forth to the ends of the world will always have its intended effect. It will be salvific and sanctifying or it will be condemning and hardening. But it will always have its intended effect. We can be optimistic about the fact that all whose names are written in the Lamb's book of life shall be saved. Optimistic knowing that at one point in time the nations were in darkness, but in darkness no more. That the, we have brothers and sisters in the faith all over the world. Isn't that an amazing thing? And there are brothers and sisters being converted to the faith throughout the world and who will continue to be until the coming of Christ. For that we ought to be optimistic and ought to rejoice. And then finally optimistic because we know that at the end when, when Christ returns again, He will deliver us through judging our enemies. And so we, at that time we know we will enjoy glory with the King. And so for all those reasons, right, those are abundant reasons for us to be optimistic in our eschatology, optimistic about what the future holds for us. This then leads us to our third and final point, which is this, God consigns the devil to eternal torment. God consigns the devil to eternal torment. Please look with me at verse uh, 10. And the devil who had deceived them was thrown into the lake of fire and sulfur where the beast and the false prophet were and they will be tormented day and night forever and ever. So we see here that the, the devil, right, that dragon, the ancient serpent, is, is cast in to the lake of fire along with the beast and the false prophet. Right? As soon as they are, immediately after we see that the dragon is thrown in as well. The devil is. Remember, this text is a, a recapitulation of Revelation 19, verses 17 to 21, where we're told what happens. The beast and the false prophet are defeated. They're thrown into the lake of fire and sulfur. Chapter 19 highlighted the beast and the false prophet's defeat. Chapter 20 now highlights the defeat of Satan. And with that punishment, and with that consignment to hell, what is it that we see? That the lake of fire, that the second death, as we said last week, is then spiritual in nature. Right? That punishment is spiritual in nature. What is, why is one of the reasons we know this? Well, because Satan is a spiritual being. And so Satan's punishment is going to be a spiritual punishment. And so we see that that penalty is a, is a spiritual torment that is everlasting. And so this ought to be a, a frightful picture to consider. Right? It ought to be, to be dreadful to think about when we, we know that all of those people who, who follow the devil's army are going to end up in the same place that the devil will be. Right? In that lake of fire. I mean, right now, brothers and sisters, the ungodly do not recognize the benefit that they receive from the common grace of God. They don't recognize that right now. How they live and move and have their being in Him. How God allows not only the rain to fall upon the just, but even the unjust. How God upholds their very life every day. How God gives to them everything they need. And oftentimes, to the ungodly, doesn't He also give to them far more in abundance as well? He gives them all these things, but in hell, brothers and sisters, that common grace will be absent for good. And in Matthew chapter 25, verse 41, what does Jesus say to many? Depart from me, you cursed, into eternal torment, 
prepared for the devil and his angels. And so let us see that the second death, that eternal death, is a departing from the common grace of God. Eternal death is a departing from the common grace of God. And in hell, brothers and sisters, they they will see how much they miss it as their conscience constantly torments them day and night. And likewise, they will be tormented with anger in hell, along with the devil. Why? Out of their hatred for God? Out of the hatred for God's people? They will be grinding their teeth, but unable to ever do anything again to attack our Lord or His people. You see, His presence there in hell, our Lord's, will be an angry presence. Hell is the place reserved for God's wrath where it is poured out in full day after day after day. There will be no place for rest. There will be no place for peace. There will be no place for comfort at all. And so, brothers and sisters, we see that indeed it is a fearful and frightful thing to fall into the hands of a living God. But this is why it's so important that we do not listen to the devil And know this, that the devil is a master at persuasion. I want all the children to listen up in particular here. Children, know this. The the devil is a a master manipulator. And what he's trying to tell you to do right now is don't think about the future. He's saying, don't think about hell. Don't think about judgment. Don't think about the second death. It's so far away in your future. Don't even consider it right now. That's what the devil is saying to you. But none of us know how long we will live. What does Jesus say in the parable of the rich fool? In Luke chapter 12, verses 19 and 20. There He says this, The rich fool says to himself, I will say to my soul, Soul, you have ample goods laid up for many years. Relax, eat, drink, and be merry. But God said to him, Fool, This night your soul is required of you and the things you have prepared, whose will they be? So don't buy into the lie of the devil. It's important that we now consider judgment, that we now consider hell, that we now consider the second death. Because none of us know when we're going to breathe our last breath. And so there is no time to waste. We must seek first the kingdom of God. We must seek Christ daily. And that ought to be a motivating factor all the more to, to us who are believers today, shouldn't it be? Right? That we never let our children go without knowing these doctrines. Right? That we never let our family or friends or those that the Lord brings into contact with us right, go never hearing about these things. Right? Thinking it's a can that can just continue to be kicked down the line. This is also why the church must not allow the doctrine of hell to be mythologized. And by that, what I mean is turned into a fairy tale. The church cannot allow this to happen. Nor can we allow hell to just be equated with annihilation. Because there are many churches, brothers and sisters, who have done this. And because of it, their many church goers will be in hell. But you have heard of its horrors. You know of its reality. Of hell and the devil. And so it is we who, who must be all the more aware. All the more prepared. And yet we can thank God and rejoice in knowing that that second death will not touch a true believer. 
The first resurrection has secured us of that thing. And so we can rejoice during these thousand years. As Paul says, waiting for our blessed hope, right? the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior Jesus Christ, knowing that He gave Himself to redeem us from all lawlessness and to purify Himself for a people for His own possession. Brothers and sisters, know this, that complete judgment means complete and perfect salvation for you and I. May that cause us to thank God every day of our lives, for it is only because of Him that such goodness awaits God's people. Let us pray. Gracious Father, we thank You for both Your warnings and Your encouragements. Uh, We thank You, Father, that You have uh, revealed weighty doctrines like the doctrine of hell to us that we might uh, recognize the the gravity of what uh, must happen because of sin. And it may cause us to see our need to look forward to a Savior who can uh, cause us to escape that uh, second death. And so, Lord, we pray today that those who have who have not trusted in Christ, Lord, that, that if it be Thy will, that You would grant them the, the faith to believe. Lord, we likewise pray for our young ones here today that, that Lord, You would... Uh, cause them to to contemplate and to consider uh, not just what today or tomorrow is going to go on, what kind of playing and enjoyment they might uh, be able to engage in, but rather, Lord, we ask that You would help them to to think about uh, the future, to think about death, to think about hell, to think about the final judgment because... We all will stand before the Lord at the final judgment, Lord. And we pray uh, that our children will be the sheep who you call and say to go into everlasting life and not to be the goats who depart into eternal torment forever. And so, Lord, we pray your blessings upon our families and upon our children. We pray, Lord, that you would strengthen us as parents to, to continue to remind our children and those we love of this great reality for it is a a frightful thing to fall into the hands of an angry God. But what a wonderful and beautiful and delightful thing to have the favor of God upon you in Jesus Christ. And so, Lord, we come before you and we ask all these things in Christ's name we pray. Amen.